0: Would you pray with me this morning? Mighty one again, how good it is to be given the opportunity to think about you and to read that word which you've given to us, to process it and to apply it to your glory today. Father, would you push me out of the way and use this voice and this mind which you have given me to the glory of your name and kingdom forever and ever, always through our Christ. We pray together saying, amen. One of my favorite John Wayne movies is a movie called McClintock. Or if you're from New York, it's McClinic or something like that, right? And in the movie, John Wayne plays the part of G.W. McClintock. He's a very good man. He's mad when the Indians are abused and orphans and widows are taken advantage of. It's very Christ-like. His character has very Christ-like qualities about it. But he and his wife, the... Beautiful Maureen O'Hara, who plays Catherine, are estranged. It's almost Shakespearean. The misunderstanding grows, and now they're estranged. They're separated. It's kind of sad. Well, while Mrs. McClintock is in New York because she's become a hoity-toity highfalutin socialite, good old G.W. is back at the ranch, and he's still doing that hard work that they've always known when they started together as a young couple. But he's hired a very attractive housekeeper. Her name is Mrs. Warren. And she is the Yvonne Carlo. You might remember her from being Mrs. Munster in the Munsters. Trained Broadway actress, beautiful voice, sing and dance, triple threat. But Mrs. McIntosh comes home because she wants to talk to her husband about the future of their daughter, Becky. No, Rebecca. It's not Becky anymore. She's not just some range hand, right? So she's going to have this adult conversation with her husband, who's a little rough around the edges, but has a heart of gold. Well, one night, Mr. McClintock comes home from the you-know-what with a little too much coolant in his radiator, if you know what I mean. Right? But he's very happy because tomorrow's the 4th of July. It's going to be a big celebration, and his daughter's home from college. And Mrs. Warren has stayed up late because she has something important to tell him. The very attractive Mrs. Warren, by the way. And in his celebratory mood, he insists that he shouldn't be drinking alone. So Mrs. Warren hesitantly takes a sip of his very good whiskey. And in about eight minutes, she's tipsy. (laughs) Because, you know, he's just a good-hearted guy. And as she tries to work her way up the steps because she said, you know, Mr. McClintock, I'm just going to tell you my good news tomorrow. My important news. I'm just going to tell you that tomorrow. So she stumbles into the foyer and she's trying to get up the steps and doesn't quite make it. Now the goodness of his heart... GW says, well, I will help you, Mrs. Warren. And he puts his hand around her waist, and they get about five steps up, and they fall backwards onto each other in a compromising position. At the same time, Mrs. McClintock comes to the top of the landing and sees this. Oh, we are so near to having a reconciliation, but now she sees her husband in this compromising position. She comes down the steps, and she raises her finger, and she goes, and John Wayne says these immortal words. Now, Catherine, are you going to believe what you see or what I tell you? <laughs> That's our idea today. Are we going to believe what we see or what God tells us? So today I'd like to present to you a very controversial passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1. You and I live in a world hasn't changed really that much that not only pooh-poohs this narrative, you're told that not only... is not even legend. There's no truth upon which it sits. It's fantasy. These are the writings and the scribbles and scrabblings of an ancient Bedouin people who had no idea about the universe or science, and therefore, this narrative is not to be treated with any respect. Certainly, it isn't history. So that's where we are this morning. So if you'd like to look at your handouts, by the way, another ancient Christian tradition... Are there any more handouts we could pass out? I, I did about 25 or so. If you'd like one, please take notes. I'll give you my phone number if you want to call me and say, Jimmy, where in the world did you get that? You know I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm a lay person. So I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to use me and the Holy Spirit to open our ears to this truth. That is our only hope, correct? There are four divisions this morning in our discourse. And we're going to look at patterns that our Lord and God has set down intentionally for us. And the big pattern, of course, is day one through seven. And in those seven days, I want us to look at the first three days where God fashions his creation. Then there's that controversial fourth day when he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars and integrates our solar system into the universe. That's not the way the world tells us, right? I'm going to call that fixing god fixes the earth not as in repair but as in putting it somewhere the third division is god fills his creation that would be days five and six and then i went looking for an f word (laughs) i found one it's the french word fit f-e-t-e it means to celebrate it means to memorialize it means to have a festival That would be our seventh day. So there are four divisions. And that's the big pattern I want us to look at. But in that big pattern, there's a daily pattern. And there are smaller patterns that God sprinkles in underneath. And I believe that he's given us these patterns for a specific reason. So today, again, our title is, If it took God six days to create the universe, say it with me. What took him so long, right? You see our perspective here? We're told that the universe is a little over 12 billion years old, right? That's what the world tells us. Could the king of the universe, made the, could he have made the universe in one 12 billionth of a second? Well, he is the supreme being, right? He could have done that. So we have one 12th of a billionth of a second and we have 12 billion years. What's in the middle? Creation week. Here we go. Let's see the pattern that our God and King has laid out for us and how he layers other patterns into them just for our, can I use the hard word, edification? Just for our encouragement. So our first division is God fashions his creation, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 1. And as we begin our discourse today, brothers and sisters, I'd like to remember three questions. If you could, hold these in the front of your mind. The first question. Does God love you? The second question. Does God want you confused? And the third question. Can God be trusted? I'm hoping that's a yes, no, yes sandwich. Right? Does God love you? Yes. Does God want us confused? No. Can God be trusted? So if we can hold these three questions in the forefront of our minds as we go through this narrative, it might help here's another hard word, ameliorate some of the tension we're going to feel as we go through this narrative. Because I'm telling you, friends, this is not what the world tells us. The full weight of our world now is against this narrative. And if there's even a hint of you maybe believing it, there could be consequences. In academia, you might not be vetted as a professor. At your work, you may lose friends or family members. You may be looked upon as an anti-scientific anti-intellectual, superstitious rube. Because you would dare to consider what we're going to read today as history. So here we go. First division. God fashions his creation. Day one, verses one through five. You'll notice here in the first verse that God's spirit, oh my gosh, God's spirit there's a clue here, maybe we're going to talk about the nature of our God, that God's spirit hovers over the waters. And you see, I'm, lo- I'm working from the New International Version today. There is an idea here that something is formless, empty, and dark. Okay? Formless, empty, and dark. We could say chaos, lack of order, no hierarchy. If you think about this for a moment, this is not what we see in the universe today, friends. In science, there's this thing called the second law of thermodynamics. It's entropy. That just means things get colder, darker, and slower. That's what we see. Your car battery. If you don't charge it, it goes dead. When your car battery is charged, it's ordered. If you don't charge it, it decays into disorder. You know, all the positive particles are on one side of the cell, and all the negative particles are on the other side. And when you start the car... Red rover, red rover, they cross. And that's where you get your energy. Well, if you don't keep that battery in order, charged, it will eventually what? It'll go dead. But here's the king of the universe bringing order out of chaos, which is exactly opposite of what we see in our world today. It's as if God is the creator of the laws of nature. And now he's even violating one to start everything by pulling out of chaos order. Can you imagine how much power that takes? To take that which is not and make it that which is? That's the God that we worship. So right off the bat here in day one, we're seeing things that God is doing to put his mark on his creation that we might see proof of his sovereignty. Hey, just an aside, I found this pretty interesting on some research I was doing this week. There was a man named Herbert Spencer. He lived from 1821 to 1903, and he was a very, very popular contemporary of Charles Darwin. As a matter of fact, Mr. Spencer is the guy who coined the phrase survival of the fittest. He wrote prolifically. He was a very popular and well-known author. He took the basics of Darwin's ideas and really began to apply them to psychology and sociology and finances. He really was a spokesman for evolution. Well, he had a project. He had this project which basically he was going to create a pattern here and he called it the five categories of everything. He wanted to to make as few categories as possible that he figured you could put everything in the universe into. Does that make sense? He wanted to organize five or six or seven categories, and in those categories, he wanted to put everything we could think about in one of those categories, and here they are. Mr. Spencer's categories came out to be time, force, action, space, and matter. In that order, by the way. So here's a 19th century agnostic. Here's a quote from one of his works. He did not believe in theology. He considered considered theology to be the impiety of the pious. In other words, hypocrisy of the hypocrites. Right. So his five categories are time, force, action, space, and matter. Look at Genesis chapter one, verse one, for me. You ready? In the beginning, time, God, force, created action, the heavens, space, and the earth. Matter. (laughs) Mr. Spencer's kind of a little bit behind God, isn't he? As we move on down, down into Genesis 1 through 3, we see that there is a pattern in the creation week, and each day also has a pattern built into it. We see at least four elements in each of the six days of creation. One element is there's a report on the activity that God is doing for that particular day. There's a list of the things that God does. And then there's a phrase. There was evening and there was morning. How would we say that in modern English? And the sun set and the sun rose, right? Evening and morning. What is between the sun setting and the sun rising? Nighttime. Oh my gosh, Jimmy. It's just the first day. There's no sun. There's no moon. There's no stars. And yet there seems to be an evening and a morning, night and day. How can that happen? Hmm, Let's talk about that, shall we? Another element we find in that sequence of the day is that there's going to be a self-report. God's going to grade himself on the work that he's done that day. And then there's going to be a number, one through six, and there's going to be the word day. So each of the six days of creation is organized in that pattern. So now we have a pattern within a pattern, don't we? We've got the seven-day pattern, we've got a daily pattern, and then God's going to start sprinkling in some other patterns just to keep us interested. Jesus, or, I'm sorry, God, yeah, it is Jesus. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe, isn't he? God then takes, in verse 3, and says, Let there be light. That suggests to us that the power of God's creative urge is his voice. <laughs> it's pretty powerful, isn't it? I was reading in the Revelation recently, and when Jesus returns, there's going to be this huge battle between good and evil. And you know how Jesus is going to absolve, how he's going to win that? It's going to be what it says in the Revelation, with the breath of his mouth. You know what that means to me? I saw God's going to defeat our enemy. That's so humiliating for the bad guys, isn't it? Well, here we see that breath in a sense, that word, the power of of God himself coming out through his mouth and creating something out of nothing. Now, when we say something out of nothing, let's be careful. We're saying something physical out of something not physical, okay? Because something is there, right? The Lord God himself, the first realm, everything that is infinite is all here. He's just going to move into a different realm that we call The natural realm. But the Lord says, let there be light. There is so much mystery in light. Did you know that? Did you know that light can manifest or show itself as a particle or as a wave? Well, make up your mind. Are you a particle or are you a wave? I don't know. I'm both. Light is both. As a matter of fact, there is an experiment in quantum physics called the slit experiment. The light comes out of a light gun as a particle. It hits a wall with two slits in it. The slits segregate the particles, and there's a receiving sensor on the back side of the wall. And guess what the receiving sensor records as the light comes through the slit? Not particles. Waves. Well, make up your mind. Are you a particle or a wave? Both. So right off the bat, God has created something that is really mysterious to us, isn't it? As a matter of fact, the word here, light, can also be translated as vibration or motion, or energy. So one of the first things our Lord God does is he introduces energy into his creation, light into his creation. There's also a clue here that, my friends, the spirit hovering over the darkness is the spirit of God. We'll talk about that as we get to day seven. There's evening and there's morning on the first day with no sun, moon, and stars. We'll talk about that on the fourth day, shall we? So day two, which is verses six through eight, we see that the Lord God is now going to create something else, and that is what we call the atmosphere or the sky. Now, already we have liquids, right? The Spirit was hovering over water. There's this chaotic mass, so the Lord God's already created liquids, And now we're going to see him creating what? An expanse we call atmosphere or sky. That's gas, okay? So what are the three basic conditions? Liquids, solids, and... We got liquids so far, don't we? We got gas so far, don't we? We've got energy, don't we? Well, pretty soon we're going to get some solids out of this, aren't we? But right now, as we work our way through day two, we see that the Lord God has created an expanse. There's a sense that now there is liquid water below, an open space, and vaporous water above. Now, on day three, in verses nine through 13, we have a transition. There are two transition days during the creation week, day three and day six. And what marks a transition day is you get two goods. We get two goods in day three and we get two goods in day six. Now what's the transition here from day three to day four? We're transitioning from God fashioning His creation to fixing the place of the Earth in our solar system in the universe. So on day two we get atmosphere, we get a sky, we separate water, which is probably vaporous above and liquid below. And in day three, we get two goods as we work our way into day three. Now remember, each of these days has the phrase, "And there was evening," and there was morning." A number and the word day. And evening and morning. Does that suggest to you that God is doing something between the evening and the morning that he's not doing the daylight? So it's kind of a general concept here, but is God setting another pattern for us here subtly? Because there doesn't seem to be any creation activity going on between sun setting and sun rising, is there? The report says God does these things, then there's evening. Then there's morning. And then there's a day number. Hmm, is that another pattern he might be setting for us? We should be doing something during the day that we don't do at night or vice versa? They're subtle, but I think they're here. And by the way, brothers and sisters, we're not, we're not inventing these patterns. We're not creating them. We're discovering them. They're already there. We're reading and thinking and processing with the mind that God gave us. We are not making these up. They're already in the sequence. We're discovering them. And I think that's what makes being a Christ follower really exciting is discovering what he's doing in the life that we live. It really is exciting. It can be considered a treasure hunt sometimes. Well, on the third day, we get two goods. It's a transition day. You'll notice that God creates solids, or the dry ground, and you get your first good at the solids. God saw that the dry ground is good. And then in verse 11, we get plant life. We get vegetation, trees, seed-bearing plants, fruits and seeds. And you'll note the phrase in verse 12 of chapter 1, according to their various kinds. We're going to see that again. The pattern we're seeing here is it seems that the Lord God has set boundaries on life. And that within those boundaries, there can be variation and adaptation and change. But those boundaries, the notion of being kinds, is fixed. Now, my friends, we live in a world where that is not considered true because legacy macroevolution requires that the boundaries between a species or a genus or a family be more permeable so that you can cross and get new life. I don't mean to be silly about this, but it would be um, if you were to cross a dog and a cat and get a dad or a cog out of it, right? That's what evolution tells us, that those... Boundaries between the kinds are permeable. You get an information flow between them. But that's not what this narrative suggests, is it? God has set kinds. We might might refer to them as um, equine would be a kind. Bovine would be a kind. Feline would be a kind. Canine would be a kind. And all the life in those particular genuses or families would be that set. That God has set the kinds. And he's even set the kinds when it comes to the plant world. Green life also has set kinds. Holy mackerel. Can you believe how controversial this is? I want you then to circle, if you want to, or make a note to this whole notion of green life. We're going to look at three distinct hierarchies of life in the creation week. Another pattern. And don't forget, that means that you and me... When God created our kind, we were herbivores. We ate plants. We ate veggies, fruits, and nuts. And we got all the protein and all the carbohydrates we needed from fruits and veggies and nuts. We didn't eat meat until after the flood, Genesis 9-3, when God said, okay, this is such a hostile place now from what it used to be. You're going to have to get your protein from somewhere else. But in the meantime, you and I were designed... To be plant eaters. So that means if God gives, as he tells us on the sixth day, if he gives green life to us to eat, animals and human beings, that means you're not killing a tomato when you eat it. Okay? There is no such thing as murdering an asparagus. They don't have blood in them. They have chlorophyll. So God has intentionally made them specifically for food for us. And it's a Supremely efficient recycling system, isn't it? Green life. I just want to throw something else at you. All that green life out there is filtering carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and making it into oxygen. We need more green life, don't we? Oh, say, oh, so our first principle then reads like this God fashions his creation establishing observable patterns, God's doing that on purpose for us. So I've got an application for us. What's God fashioning in the life you're living right now? In this week, what's he fashioning? What pattern might you see in the way that God is moving you in the community he's put you, in the family he's put you, in the workplace he's put you? Remember, Pastor John tells us repeatedly, if God's sovereign, you're never in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if God's sovereign, there's no such thing as privacy, is there? Really, ultimately, Second division, God fixes the earth, moon, and sun in the universe. This is verses 14 through 19, day four. Very controversial. So right in the middle of the creation week, day four, we've got this idea that somehow these first three days, God has marked time, hasn't he? He's There was evening in the morning, first day. There was evening in the morning, a second day. There was evening, there was morning the third day. How is God doing that? If there's no sun, moon, and stars yet. This is very controversial. This is not what the world tells us. The world tells us that a singularity detonated the Big Bang at just the right rate, at just the right temperature, all the mass and all the energy in the, uniform, uh, in the universe moves at just the right rate so that eventually these hot masses of gas and material begin to cool and coalesce into galactic globular formations, and then that cools and coalesces into solar systems, now we get individual stars and their surrounding planetoids or planets. And by the way, Pluto is no longer a planet. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Remember that little acronym? You know, my mom's and the pickles and the things. Okay, so it's gone. But in the meantime, this is not what the world tells us. Can if? Okay, let's pause just for a second. Can you feel some tension? This is not what the world tells us. The full weight of the world says this is not what happened. There was no suspension of time, space, or matter, and then a fourth period of time when the entire universe is constructed and lit by this supreme being, and then the orbit of the earth and the moon and its star is integrated into that universe. That's not how it happened. Can you feel some tension here? Does God love you? is God what you confused? Can God be trusted? Do you know how radical that is in the world we live in today? You and I are called by the Holy Spirit to observe this as God's record of what happened when no one was there to see it happen. This is dangerous in a sense, isn't it? Well, day 4, God's going to create The heavenlies. Now, just as a quick, if you turn there with me, if you're looking at verse 14, what is the purpose of the sun, the moon, the stars? What's the purpose? A big clock, right? God has put a big clock in the heavens for us. Now, why would the king of the universe put a big clock in the sky for you and me? Probably because time is important to us. You know, if you and I call ourselves sentient, sentience means that we are aware of ourselves. But I'm going to tell you right now, I was feeding Susie's horses this morning. They're aware of themselves, believe me. You know, Fabio, I could go first. Bo, I would go first. No, they're they're aware of themselves. But there's something special about you and me as being human beings, because not only are we self-aware, we are aware of ourselves in the stream of time. Aren't we? That's part of being created in God's image, I believe. So, our good God and Creator put into the skies a clock for us. That's one of the primary purposes of the heavenlies. Now, how do we figure out what a day is? Our planet rotates around its own axis, it takes about 24 hours, right? How about figuring out a month? The moon. From new moon to moon, new moon is 28 days. That's about a month. You string a couple of those together, you get a season, right? Ah, what about year? You can do that. Hey, you know, what I, I was looking over there on the horizon, and a while ago, the sun raised at the very same place. Exactly. I'm going to put a stake in the ground right there. Come around about another. Hey, it's coming up right there again. That must be a, hmm, what is that? Let's call it a year, right? We've been around the sun once, so we've got a pretty obvious marker for a day, and for a week, and for seasons, and for a year, but what do we not have a marker for? Seven day a week? Where'd that come from? Let me show you something. If this was an evolutionary process, I probably would have come up with a five, a base five system, or a base ten system. See that? I don't think I would have come up with a base seven system. Would you? Now, I got some extra things out here. I'm going to put them all together. And either five or ten, but I don't think seven. I'm wondering if the pattern of the seven-day week is imposed on us by God, just like language. That God's saying, hey, here's some more evidence that I'm in charge of even the calendar. I'm going to give you obvious markings for the day and for the month and for the seasons and the year. But when it comes to the week, this is what you got. In 1793, just after the French Revolution, these guys got the great idea, we're going to start our own calendar. It was called the French Republican Calendar. Let me read how it worked to you. The French went to a 10-day week. They had three of these 10-day weeks in a month. The new Republican minute was 100 seconds. Hmm? The new Republican hour was 100 minutes. It still had 12 months. But what happened after 13 years? The animals couldn't even take it. (laughs) Horses and donkeys and oxen could not take this arbitrary imposition of human imagination. And under Napoleon, the Republican calendar was ended. Now in verse 17, we see also that these lights in the heavenlies have another purpose, and that, of course, is to provide light on the earth. There was a great light that governed the day. We call that our star, the sun. And there was a lesser light at night. We call that the moon. So again, in this sequence, we see that God himself as the supreme being is putting his pattern on his universe. Second principle, read, God fixes the sun, moon, and stars in place so they might serve as signs for his observable patterns. An application might read, where has God fixed the life that you live? Where has he placed you in community with others where you are able to be his messenger and influencer? As he fixes the universe, he fixes us in a place too, right? Third division, brothers and sisters, is God fills his creation. This is a... This is a big day, days five and day six, verses 20 through 31. Day five is my favorite day. It's the day of the flyers, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. You know, the birds are flying through an atmosphere of gas, but the fish are flying through an, an environment of, of liquid, right? I mean, they're both soaring and flying, aren't they? So day five, the day of the flyers. And it seems in the narrative here that the, um, the fish are slightly first. That the oceans are, quote-unquote, teeming with life. Isn't that just like God in his abundant generosity? And again, you see this notion according to their kinds. You see that? Now, this is going to conflict directly with Darwin's ideas. Because remember, Darwin's idea is that there's this primordial life form. And from this primordial life form, all of the life rises as in a tree. That's not what God is telling us in this narrative, is he? In this sequence, he's telling us it looks more like an orchard. You got the bovine tree. You got the canine tree. You got the fruit column, right? These are fruit trees in here. Uh, we've We've got a column here that's just for dogs. So it's not a tree with a root, single root. It's an orchard of life. You see the difference, the way this narrative is telling us as opposed to what? Classic legacy evolution is telling us about life and how it's categorized. So on the fifth day, we get the flyers according to their kinds. And then we see this for the first time in the day. We see this, that God blesses these organisms and says, multiply. On the sixth day, again, God is filling his creation now. We've gone from fashioning to fixing excuse me, to filling. In verse 24, we see the the phrase living creatures. That's in the NIV, but it's pretty much the same in the ESV, living creatures. And again, they're created according to their kinds. And in the bottom of verse 24, you see there's already a differentiation. There's livestock, which is domestic animal life. There are creatures that move along the ground that would be creeping life, including insects. And then there's wild animals. The notion is wild animals. It's almost as if God has designed certain families and genus and species to be tamed or to be in closer relationship with us. And the wild animals seem to be out on the periphery. They're just there maybe for beauty. I don't know. But there is a sense that God is setting a pattern even in the animal world in the relation to human beings who aren't here yet. Isn't that just like our God, to be so intentional and so thoughtful? In verse 26, we get this marvelous and mysterious phrase from God as he inspires the hand of Moses to write this record. Let us make man in our image. I am promising you, brothers and sisters, with confidence that God isn't talking to the angels He's talking to the beautiful community of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've talked about this before. Having a triune God who is three co-equal, co-eternal persons in one Godhead is not illogical. If we were to say three persons in one person, eh, that's not a good thought. If we were to say three gods in one God, eh, that's not a good thought. It's a category error. You got too many numbers and not enough categories. We have two numbers, a three and a one, right? So we say three persons, that's one category, one God, that's another category, no category error, that's good clean thinking, and that's the God that we worship. So we're getting a clue here, I don't speak Hebrew, I don't read Hebrew, I have to read on other people's research, but Elohim, that I am, means plural at the end we're looking at the beauty of and the mystery of a God who is triune here in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. You see, God is not a monad, M-O-N-A-D. Allah, the God of the Islamic community, is a monad. He and he alone. As a matter of fact, the most serious sin in Islam is the sin of shirk, and that is ascribing a partner to Allah. In verse 26, at the bottom of that verse, you'll see that God is defining the work of humanity before he's even created the human race. You see that? The bottom of verse 26. And doesn't that fit and snug up nicely in Ephesians 2.10 where Paul writes for us, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that neat? God creates the job and makes you to do it. And in verse 27, God created man in God's own image, male and female. He created them. Here's another pattern. There's really only two genders, my friends. It's so controversial today. I'm going to get pushback on this. But that's the pattern our God set for us. Jimmy, you're hurting somebody's feeling when you tell them there's only boys and girls. I'm going to give you a personal testimony here real quickly. I'm over a little bit. but I lost my sister, Eva to alcohol and cocaine addiction. And for years, I enabled her. I told her what she wanted to hear instead of the truth. And it killed her. By the time we thought about intervention, it was really almost too late. If you tell someone what they want to hear, you're helping yourself. But if you tell them the truth, you're helping them. There's only two genders. God set the pattern. Let's lovingly and gently care for those who are confused about their gender as Jesus deals with us. And let's not lie to them anymore by using a gender or a pronoun that they want. You're just participating in their confusion. We're never going to get you to the point where you can figure out who God made you to be if we don't tell you the truth. I want you to tell me the truth. Male and female, God made them. We were designed as herbivores to eat green life. That life was also created in its kind. And then we see that there are two goods on the sixth day. There's a good after creating all animal life. And then verse 31, there's the very good, which is the good cap of all the creation week. The principle here in third division, God fills his creation abundantly as a pattern of his generosity. How has God filled you this week? What's he done to show you his generosity as he fills you with himself and truth? The last division goes pretty quickly. God fates his creation from the French word to celebrate. This is chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I'm sorry, 1 through 3. God didn't stop working because he was tired. <laughs> he stopped working because the job was done. There was nothing more to do. He didn't quit, he finished. And in verse 3, he memorialized this day. Sunday is a memorial of all the work that God had done those six days of creation. What if you and I treated Sunday as a memorial of all that God had done for us in the previous six days? Would that change the way we worshiped? We come together on the seventh day in that sense to tell each other fide Holy Spirit sightings. To tell each other what the Lord God has been doing and is doing in the life that we live for him. Yes, we are still here to encourage one another, to help one another, to lift each other up in prayer, to help each other financially or physically, spiritually. But wow, what if we came together like like this afternoon at the potluck? What if someone just stood up and said, hey, I want to tell you guys what the Lord's been doing in the life I live this week. I bet the food would taste better. Right, But the seventh day is a memorial. It's a, it's a day that God sets aside, makes special. We use the word holy because he says, look at that. It's like sitting on your front porch with a big glass of iced tea on a hot summer day, having just cut that field, and boy, doesn't it look good. Wow, that looks very good. Okay, very good. The principle here is God blesses the seventh day as a memorial of his creation work. He blesses it as a memorial of his creation work. Hey, what do you do to remember the work that God does in the life you live? How do you memorialize those things that he does? It could be a Sunday. It could be any day of the week. But how do you intentionally seek to memorialize and remember what God is doing in the life you live? Well, in conclusion, eventually G.W. and Catherine reunite. Their family remains intact. They remember and return to their legacy of thankful living and generous acts. You see, it does take informed eyes to see beyond what is sometimes before us. And only the one true God can give us that ability because he takes the veil away. And we have the mind of Christ because of the miracle of our justification. So are you and I going to believe what we see or what our husband tells us? Because who is our husband? We, the bride of Christ. Jesus himself is our husband. And as his church and his bride, we are given the stunning privilege of telling others about our God's loving kindness, which are revealed in the patterns of the creation week. Let's pray, shall we? Mighty one, who are we that we would sit before you as your sons and daughters, knowing it was by the blood and the merit of your son, Jesus Christ, that we make entrance into this place. Glory and honor, power and beauty to you and you alone, Father, for giving us these patterns and showing us your love and affection for us by what your son, Jesus, did on that cross. And we now take full confidence in the act that he is resurrected and alive at this very moment and that we can claim him as our strength, as our hope, and as our purpose. Seal in us everything that glorifies you, mighty one, and cast out any error that may have been heard in this room today. For the sake of your son, we seek your face and favor and say together, amen. And now we get to go downstairs in, right? May God be praised. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you in a week. Six days. Celebrate next Sunday. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at wbfva.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at wbfva.org. Just click on giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.